Chapter 1. What You Must Know First. Gavin's Law. A decision had to be made. The impossible decision. A nurse quietly entered the room and injected a dose of epinephrine into his IV. I wouldn't have noticed her, except that when she left, she slid the glass door closed behind her and drew the outer curtain for our privacy. We were alone. After days and days of incessant attention by multiple doctors and hospital staff, the room was completely quiet. Quiet, that is, aside from the gentle rise and fall of the ventilator and the soft beep, beep, beep of the heart monitor. Adrenaline coursed madly through my veins. The room spun around me as I sat, disoriented to the point of nausea on a stool beside his bed. I gripped the bed rail to keep from tipping over, but I wasn't watching him. My eyes were glued to her as she fell into the chair in the corner of the room and wept, chest heaving, face pressed hard into her hands. This is a decision we shouldn't have to make, she said, almost imperceptibly as she ran her hands frantically through her hair, pulling it tight away from her face. Agony. There wasn't any other word. I took her hands in mine and looked deeply into her eyes, and together we made the impossible decision. Do not resuscitate. Those were the wee hours of the morning on January 7th, 2010. Two years earlier, on a sunny Hawaiian day in the spring of 2007, Gavin took a gray plastic container and placed his journals, a beat-up card containing the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, and a few other precious possessions inside. He sealed the box and labeled it to be open 2027. He took a sharpie and adorned his treasure chest with a clever little drawing of a pirate and a short note to himself that read, Hello, old man Gavin. He got his salt-rusted beach cruiser carefully balanced the box on his lap, and pedaled with bare feet toward the lush Hawaiian mountains. Gavin had called Hawaii home for more than five years, nearly a quarter of his young life, and he wanted to leave a piece of his heart with the island that had taught and given him so much. He buried his treasure at the base of the beautiful Ko'olaloa Mountains, intending not to open it again for 20 years. It was only a few short weeks later, however, that those journals were unearthed, and I found myself reading excerpts from them to a grief-stricken audience of hundreds who had gathered to celebrate his incredible young life. Less than three weeks after burying his time capsule, my healthy and vibrant young brother-in-law passed away unexpectedly in his sleep. He was 21 years old. A little over two years after Gavin's death, my wife Natalie gave birth to our fourth son, with pride, we named our little guy after his late uncle. Baby Gavin was born October 24, 2009. He was perfect, and even his rough-and-tumble big brothers agreed. Yet, here we sat, only ten short weeks into his life, alone in a hospital room. Alone, except for the quiet nurse and her epinephrine. Natalie on one side of Gavin, and I on the other. The words... Do not resuscitate, ringing heavily in our ears as tears stung the edges of our raw eyes. My initial response had been to give our son every fighting chance at survival. Of course we'll resuscitate, I had confidently said. 
I was baffled that the doctors even had the audacity to ask. Words and phrases began pounding through my brain, clouding my thinking, impairing my sense of reason, and damning my judgment completely. Pertussis, secondary infection, experimental procedure, end of the line, nothing more we can do, time to say goodbye. Then slowly, very slowly, the reality of our situation started to set in. I finally came to see the absolute hopelessness we were facing. I became aware that the violent process of resuscitation in and of itself would only lengthen Gavin's suffering and not save his life. I swallowed hard and I gathered the courage to let go. Natalie and I cried together. We spoke words of deep, profound love to our sweet.